read from Matthew chapter 9. I want to look at another portion of scripture, and uh, I'll throw this one up on the screen. You can hold your place there in Matthew 9. And I want to say that this message that I want to share with you is a word for the church. So if you don't consider yourself a believer or you're just visiting the church and you're not really uh, sure about all this, this is a great opportunity for you to be here because this is a chance for you to see what we ought to be about. And uh, though we don't always get it all right all the time, uh, this is what we're supposed to be doing. This is what we're supposed to be about. And thankfully, we serve a gracious God, a God who is faithful, who, who steers us back in the right direction, and He uses us in spite of ourselves, in spite of our own uh, weaknesses and, uh, and, and uh, proneness to, to go off course from time to time. He's still gracious, and He still uses us. How many of you know that the church is still God's plan A for the world? There isn't a plan B, by the way. So it's on us to learn and to grow according to the Holy Spirit in this book. And so I want to just talk to you this morning a little bit uh, from this text in Matthew chapter 9. But first I want to read a scripture to you out of John chapter 14. The word says this in verse 1 through 6. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. This is Jesus speaking. My father's house has many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Now, back in July, we spent four weeks unpacking those verses. And I won't take the time this morning to do it. But if you want to get a better understanding of the of the doctrine of the, uh, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the understanding of heaven, about the singular salvation plan of God through Jesus, and, and about the second coming of the Lord, I would encourage you to go back and, and look up July on our church website and listen to those messages in the series called Believe. But what I want to impress upon you this morning is just this one simple nugget of truth, that Jesus said all these things under the, under the uh, first statement of saying, Don't let your heart be troubled. In other words, all these things can cause your heart to not be troubled. And so there's really two uh, emotions, if if I can say it this way, that should come uh, to the people of God when we understand the reality that, that God has a perfect plan in place, that God has a place He's preparing for us, that we can know the way to the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. All those things ought to, first of all, give us great peace and assurance. We call it the blessed hope. We can have confidence today because we know that we know where we're going. That that if, if I were to breathe my last breath in this moment, I would breathe my first breath in eternity. To be absent from the body, the Bible says, is to be in the presence of God. How awesome. What a comforting thought. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. We're heirs of salvation. We're the purchase of God. We're born of His Spirit and we're washed in His blood. Is that your story? Amen. There's another emotion, though, that it ought to leave us with. And and along with the peace and the assurance and the, the blessed hope that we have, there ought to be an unsettling in our spirit and an urgency. And that unsettling and that urgency comes because the reality of heaven is real for us. But we also know with that the reality of hell is real for others. That time is short. 
and that today is the day of salvation, and that it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. And so for the people of God, while we can rest in the hope and the confidence that we have in Jesus, we also, there's an urgency that ought to stir us out of our complacency, that ought to mobilize us as the people of God to understand that the time is short and that we have to do all we can to share the gospel with a lost and a dying world. So today I want to give you six keys or as many as we can fit in. Six keys for reaching the harvest. This is harvest season. We see it. The creation testifies. It's harvest season in the natural. But in the spirit realm, I believe it is also harvest season. I believe there's something that God is wanting to do in and through us as individuals and as a church. And in that same passage of scripture that that Jesus said, you can be comforted in your heart. You can take courage In John 14, because I'm preparing a place for you, because I'm going to the Father, because I am the way, the truth, and the life. In that same portion of Scripture, in verse 12, Jesus said these words. He said, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Now that verse right there amazes me. That Jesus would say to us, not only am I going to prepare a place for you, but because I'm going, you're going to do greater works in the earth than I did. I don't know what your opinion is of the church today or even of your own personal relationship with God. But if I can just stretch the bar way, way higher and and highlight this truth today, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, our standard is the ministry of Jesus. He said, the works that I have done... Greater works than these shall you do in the earth. And though I can't imagine for a moment that we could perform a greater quality of miracles. I mean, Jesus, you know, he could, he could speak to a person who was paralyzed and say, take up your mat and walk. He could spit in the dirt and make mud and wipe it on somebody's eyes and tell them to go and wash and they could see again. I don't even have the courage to do the first part. To, to spit and put it in somebody's face, much less to, to rub dirt in their eyes and say, go and wash and you'll see again. I don't know that we could perform a greater quality of miracles than Jesus, but I do believe we'll see a greater quantity. There'll be greater works in these last days. If I can record a three-minute video and share it with 1,900 people in a moment, that's the opportunity, that's potential for greater works. To take a message from a a small little chapel in Wrightsville, Pennsylvania and broadcast a word that somebody can pull up on the internet and listen to this message tomorrow on the other side of the world. That's that's greater. That's greater works. That's, That's incredible. But it's not just about technology. God has put resources and opportunities and empowerment through His Spirit within our grasp to do incredible exploits for God. And I believe... I believe that God wants us to do all that he's enabled us to do to reach a harvest. So I want to give you some keys. There in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is getting ready to send out his disciples. In verse 35 is where we'll begin. The word says this, Matthew 9 verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, 
proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I want to give you six things. The first one is passion. I would encourage you to write these down. There's a place in the bulletin where you can take notes. I heard a statistic this week end at our men's conference with some of the guys. We had a blast doing that. That was so great. One of the speakers said, in 16 days, you'll forget 92% of everything that you hear. So write it down. So I wrote down what he said. I also wrote down the statistic. But the more I thought about it, I was like, wow, in 16 days, I'll forget 92%. How many of you think for you it's more like 16 hours? <laughs> you'll forget 92% of, of what you heard. That's the truth sometimes. So write it down. Number one, passion. Jesus was moved when he saw the crowds. It said he had compassion on them. Passion. What kind of crowd did he see? Think about it. It says these people were sick. They were needy. They were diseased. They were hurting. They were broken. Maybe not all of them, but some of them were carrying their their friends and their loved ones to Jesus. This was a crowd that was needy. They didn't really have anything to offer Jesus. They came with open hands asking him to do something for them. And his heart was moved towards them. And as I think about my own life, there's things that all of us naturally lean into and move towards. Things that you're excited about and you you don't need to be provoked. I mean, you're passionate about it. But then there's those other things that we kind of push back from, right? Like, for example, um, some of you... uh, if you saw a bunch of stray cats, you know, you might feel bad for those cats and want to go get a little bowl of water and, and some food. But then there's the rest of us who, I just got to, I'm not trying to make enemies today, but I have, I have no affection for stray cats. I, it's just not my thing, okay? So it's not my thing. Now, now, maybe you're the one that wants to love them and take care of them and you want to give to the causes that, you know, uh, it's fine. If that's your thing, not my thing. I, I push back from that. You know, like in my family, um, Day and, and Morgan, they, they love uh, horses. They love going to the stables. They love grooming the horses. And, and Morgan's taking lessons and she's riding the horses. And, and, and you know, I go, I go into the stable and, and I see that big, beautiful animal there. And I see that big, stinky pile in front of it. And I'm like, yeah, I'll run camera. You know, I'll, I'll record the show. I'll take pictures. But like, I, I just, I'm not as, but they, they want to step right in the stuff. You know, <laughs> they want to love the horse, right? Because they're passionate about it. They love it, you know, they lean into that. And I'm like, whew, glory be to Jesus. Um, Now, I don't know. Maybe you're the exception and maybe I'm just making myself sound bad. But when I see a bunch of needy people, sick and diseased and folks that that just seem like it's going to be burdensome to help them, my first reaction is not always to just lean into that. I mean, I'd like to say it is. I I wish maybe I was more compassionate, more merciful. But to be quite honest, a lot of times we tend to reflect the the first two that passed the the man who was beaten and robbed on the road and not the Samaritan. You remember that story of the good Samaritan who who stopped and picked the man up and put him on his horse and paid for his stay at the inn so he could get better. And and Jesus says that's, that's what it means to be a friend. That's what it means to love your neighbor. 
I've got to be honest, that parable steps on my toes a little bit. Because to be quite honest, sometimes I, I see needs in people's lives. And, and, and you know, maybe I, I think I don't have all the resources to really help them. And, or the time today. And, and I know that just saying some cheap platitude is not going to help them. So, so we go around. We just go around. We avoid the circumstance. But, but this, this verse 36 right here is so critically important. Because without these words, look at it again. Verse 36. When he saw the crowds. I'm going to tell you, this story doesn't get legs. And this sermon is over before it starts. If Jesus doesn't see the crowds right here. He sees them. And not only does he see them, but he's moved towards them. He's moved with compassion. He's passionate about something in particular that motivates him to move that way. He's passionate about the Father's will. Jesus had singular focus in his life. Even when he was a boy at 12 years old, he knew when his parents asked him, Where have you been? There he was in the temple studying with the religious leaders. And he said, didn't you know that I have to be about my father's business? And then here we see him. 18 years later. He's still moving and ministering. In Luke 19.10 he says, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. In fact, in John 4, when he was sitting at the well with the Samaritan woman. And the disciples came back and they found him there. And they thought, boy, you know, you haven't had anything to eat all day. Why don't you take a break? Why don't you get something to eat? Jesus said there in John 4, he said, I have food to eat that you do not even know of. And they started asking each other, did you give him a sandwich? Like, I didn't, I didn't. is he holding out on us? We had to go into town to get something to eat. He had something here all along. Jesus looks at him and he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. My food, what feeds me, what drives me, what sustains me is knowing that I'm doing the very will of God. That's what makes my palms sweaty. That's what makes my heart beat. That's what I'm passionate about. That's what energizes me. Guys, I can go all afternoon without food if I know I'm right where I'm supposed to be, doing what I'm supposed to do. He was driven. He had passion. We have to begin with passion. We have to get a heart For God and for the things that drive the heart of God. Let's just be honest. Let's just be honest. Sometimes the reason we don't invest sacrificially out of our finances towards missions is because our heart's just not in it. We'd rather save that money for our hobby or for whatever else. It's a good cause and all. I just, you, you didn't move me, you know. My heart's not in it. Sometimes we, we don't serve, we don't meet people's needs, we don't go out of our way, we don't inconvenience ourselves, not because we don't know we should, not because we're not capable, our heart's just not in it, and so it has to begin with passion, it has to begin with us seeing people, he saw the crowds, and when he saw them, he, he saw them the way his father sees them, that we really see people for what's really happening, the people are lost. And that we're moved with compassion towards them to do something. If you've ever seen a person that's really passionate about something, you know they've reached a point where they don't care what people think about them. Right? I mean, if you don't believe that, just turn on uh, a football game this afternoon and wait till the camera scans the audience of the home team and you see some guy in his late 40s with no shirt on and he's painted 
and he's screaming. He's got this goofy foam helmet on his head, and he's yelling in the camera, that guy's going to work on Monday. He'll be wearing a tie. He'll be selling real estate or something. People go, hey, I saw you at the game. That guy doesn't care what you think of him because he's passionate, because he got 50-yard line seats, and because his team is on the field. When you're passionate, you don't really care about what other people think. Other people think it's logical or practical. When your heart is in tune with what drives the heart of God, we have to be a people of passion. He saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. Verse 37, look at it with me. Verse 37 says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The second one is this, people. Starts with passion, we have to have people. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are are few. Can I just tell you that God has always had an associate in the redemption business. He's always worked with and through people. In the Old Testament, he raised up Abraham. He said, you're going to be the father of many nations. He, he raised up a people that were his own special possession so that he could use them. And he used Moses to lead them out of bondage in Egypt. And, and he raised up Joshua so that he could pass on the mantle. And then he raised up the judges when they had gone wayward to bring them back home. And then men like Samuel, prophets of God, who would speak and eventually anoint a king like David to lead the nation. God has always used people in the business of redemption. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus could have performed a miracle in feeding some 5,000 men plus women and children. When he broke the bread, it began to multiply. Could have done it all by himself. Could have made it fall out from heaven like they did in the Old Testament. But instead, he looked at his disciples and he said, you feed them. Why? Because God always has an associate in the redemption business. Always. You know, in, in the word of God in Luke 5... Jesus forecasted a miraculous catch of fish. The disciples had fished all night. They hadn't caught anything. You remember the story. Jesus says to them, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. I mean, it would have been just as cool and scripture worthy if a whole bunch of fish would have just jumped in the boat. You know, while they're like trying to do it this way, Jesus goes, you know, just fills the boat. That would have been awesome. That's not the way he does it. He says, you. Throw your net on the other side of the boat. You're going to be part of this. You're going to be fishers of men. He's always had an associate in the redemption business when he stood outside of the tomb of Lazarus. He knows what he's about to do. In fact, he had even told his disciples plainly, Lazarus is dead. And it's good that I was delayed in getting there. And he shows up. He stands outside of the tomb. He could have just snapped his fingers like the fawns, and that stone could have just rolled away. Could have exploded it, you know, or something. It would have been awesome. But instead, he said to those people, you roll the stone away. You put your back into it. You want to see me do something? Get in the game. Go roll the stone away. I got a miracle on the other side of your effort. Or we can just stand out here and keep crying. And then when he rolled the stone away and out comes mummified Lazarus, you know what Jesus says? He doesn't say, grave clothes, let him go. He says, you, go and untie him. 
that's spooky right there. I mean, it's almost Halloween time. I don't know what they were thinking, you know, but I can promise you there was a little bit of reservation, you know. Here comes Lazarus, you know. He wasn't doing this. I mean, study it out. They wrapped those guys head to toe. I mean, he's like hopping out. They go, go and untie him. Because God has always had an associate in the business of redemption. God needs us to get in the game. He doesn't need our help, but he uses us to bring him glory. And God gets the most glory through your life and through my life when we live it completely surrendered to his will. When we have a passion for the things that he's passionate about, we say, God, speak to me to do whatever it is you want me to do. When we live in that lane, God is most glorified through our lives. That's what he wants for us. If we're going to have a harvest, we have to be a people that have a passion. A passion for the things that God is passionate about. When you, when you get passionate about the things that God is passionate about, you become partners. Partners with, first of all, God. You're partners with God. Just consider that for a moment. You're partners in the work of redemption with God. Here's what the Bible says. Look at it on the screen. First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians, rather, verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 20 says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He, Paul is saying, it's, it's almost like, it is like, God is making his appeal to you through us. There's something powerful that's taking place right now. And this is the thing that that keeps me humble and keeps me fearful. As I stand on this platform today, I realize that I'm I'm not the same as some public speaker in the local high school that's trying to, you know, just motivate you to be a better person. I'm not standing here like some Dr. Phil, you know, personality. No, there's another dimension. Though there might be some practical application that helps you, whether you know God or not, the reality is there's a deeper thing happening here. I'm standing in this pulpit today as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. He is making his appeal to you through me. The Bible says if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. I shudder when I think about being the oracles of God. I am unworthy to be God's mouthpiece, and yet... That's what he wants to do with us. And not just in the pulpit, in the workplace, in the community, in the line at the grocery store, on Facebook. When you're talking with people and you sense the Holy Spirit nudging you to turn the conversation towards the things of God. you partnering in that moment. You're partnering with God. Secondly, though, you're partnering with people. When you become passionate about the things that drive the heart of God, you become partner with a partner with others. Look at verse 38 there in Matthew chapter 9. Here's what it says. Verse 38, Matthew 9. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. See that? Workers. Not, not a worker. He said send out workers. If, if you read the synoptic gospels and you go over to Mark, and then you find out that in this same scenario... Jesus sent them out by twos. He sent them out in teams. Mark 6, 7 tells us that they, they went out in groups. Now, some of these guys, they, they had nothing in common with each other outside of their relationship with Jesus. But that ought to be enough. 
Can I, just, can I just say this in case you've been feeling bad about it maybe? You don't have to really like everybody in the church. You know, I know we try to and we should, I guess, but we're not all doing this thing together because we have everything in common. Some of you have nothing in common with some of the people in this room. You guys wouldn't show up at the same place at the same time in a million years. Your lives are completely different. And yet we can come here under the same banner of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, under the same mission of the church, and we can be partners. We can work together, not because we're best friends, not because we like each other that much, but because we have a common purpose. When you get your heart wrapped around the things that drive the heart of God, and you get passionate about it, you begin to partner with the body of Christ. Something, begins, something miraculous begins to happen. It's called unity. And when that happens, people that have different backgrounds, different lifestyles, different uh, age demographics and race demographics and, and, and hobbies and interests, and yet we all come together and we do something in unity, Jesus said that's the most evangelistic thing you can do. It's incredible what that does. The world will know you're my disciples because you love one another. People see the diversity in the church and the unity in the midst of that diversity and they go, that's amazing. In fact, that's, that's not normal. That's uncommon. That's uncommon. We become partners with God when we become partners with each other when we get passionate about the work. Here's the third thing. He said in verse 38, ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Send out workers into the harvest field. When it comes to reaching the lost, I want to tell you, prayer is the most effective activity that you can be involved in. I want to say that again. When it comes to reaching the lost, prayer is the most effective activity that you can be involved in. Now, now that, feels, that feels different for a lot of us because... Because sometimes we think that prayer is what we do before we get started with the activity. Or prayer is what we do to signify that the activity's over. Let's close in prayer. Or some of us think that prayer is for those people that are not able to participate in the activity. And well, since I can't help, I'll just pray. No, you don't just pray. Prayer is the most effective activity that you can do in the work of redemption, in the work of reaching lost people. And it doesn't mean that we don't do the other things, but it's important that we pray. David Yonggi Cho knows something about this. He is the pastor of the world's largest church, Yodoi Full Gospel Assembly of God in Seoul, Korea. About 850,000 members. Just a little work. Here's what he said about prayer. Nothing you can do will benefit you more than prayer. Nothing you can do. See, we would look at a guy that builds a church of 850,000 people and we want his book. You know, like we want to know. Like, what's the secret? We pray. Yeah, yeah, we do too, but what's the secret? Like, give us the, give us the inside scoop. How, how do you make it happen? What do you do? Like, to, to change a whole city. Like, what are the steps we do? We pray. 
They, they actually have a prayer mountain over there with little cubicles that people can go and shut themselves away in. I think they have about 10,000 cubicles on that mountain that people go 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. People shut themselves away in a little cubicle on the side of prayer mountain to pray. So I, I tend to believe him when he says nothing you can do will benefit you more than prayer. Can I just tell you today, prayer is activity in the spirit. Prayer is activity in the spirit. It's not preliminary. It's not what we just add on as an addendum at the end of our activity. Prayer is activity in the spirit. And secondly, prayer is ministry. It's valid ministry. Because God doesn't respond to busyness. God responds to prayer. And if we think the key to reaching a harvest, if we think the key to reaching a community or a lost world is is busyness and just productivity, then we've missed it. Because we can be really efficient with time management and planning and resources and yet be totally unaffected. We're not in this for efficiency. We're in it for effectiveness. And prayer is ministry. And there's some of you that feel like there's nothing you can offer the church. As long as there's breath in your lungs, you can be a part of the most influential, effective work we can do to reach lost people. Because when we pray, we become partners with God in the work of redemption. And it doesn't matter how good the preacher is or how great the outreach is. The reality is the Bible says no man seeks God unless the Spirit draws him. Which says to me, we will always fail if our partner doesn't show up. And our partner is called up through the line of prayer. He responds to praying people. Oswald Chambers said it this way. He said, prayer does not fit us for the greater works. Prayer is the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. I'm just going to give you three of them today. God's calling us at the church to reach a harvest. To reach a harvest. To see souls come in to the kingdom. We have to get passionate about it. I, I got to be honest. Just, just, trying to be, just trying to be real with you this morning. Stuff gets in the way of me being passionate about lost people sometimes. Even good stuff. Like church stuff. Activities. Stuff gets in the way. To where I can be like one of those priests or religious leaders that walks down the road and sees the man who's hurting, hurting and beaten and broken. He says, man, oh, oh, that's unfortunate. Man, I got to get to this meeting. That is so sad. Man, I, God bless you. I can be just as guilty as, as anyone. But then we see Jesus. Think he didn't have a busy schedule? He's going here. He's moving there. Man, he hasn't even had a chance to, to stop and eat or take a nap or get some rest. But all of a sudden, oh man, look at those people coming. Oh, hold on, guys, hold on. Change the plans. We're not, we're not going just yet. We're not going just yet. Because his heart was attuned to the things that his father's heart beat for. 
And I, I just, I want to ask for me and for this church that we would begin to hear the rhythm of the Holy Spirit, that we would begin to hear the heartbeat of God, that though other things are important and we, we can talk about all those things, but, but nothing is more critical than that we live our lives in step with the heartbeat of God. And that we understand that, that God has is, God is not got some elite task force out there that he's going to usher in. It's people. It's you. It's me. It's just common, everyday folks. You know, in the next chapter, and maybe we'll look at it later, but uh, it lists the 12 disciples. It tells you who they are. God calls them and he sends them out. Nothing special about those guys. There's no description of their, you know, their resume or you know, no explanation as to why he would pick Peter or, or John or, or any of those guys. Just, just their names. You get their names. And that's kind of the way it is. That's the way he recruits us. Not about title or position or experience. Nothing special about us. It's the reality. It's the reality that God is just looking for willing vessels. People that will be passionate about the things. That will hear the heartbeat of God and get on board and pray. And pray. And believe that our partner in the work is going to show up in response to our prayers. And he's going to move mightily. And lives will be changed. Lives will be changed. My prayer, you know, we're getting ready for this fall fest. The fall festival. It sounds more fun and carnival type, so that's why we call it fall fest. But I remember doing these as a kid, and we always called it the harvest festival. And in a spiritual sense, that's what I'm praying for. That we don't just do something in the natural as a church. Oh, we want to do a fall fest. We want to just, you know, love people. But that, that what we will see in connection with that, what the Spirit of God is doing in our services and throughout the week and through those points of contact with our community is a harvest festival, a celebration. The Bible says when even one comes into the kingdom, there's a celebration in heaven. The angels rejoice, the Bible says. So that's what I want. While we're having our fall fest and we're planning to love people and touch people and invite them to church this fall, I want there to be a harvest festival in the heavenlies. For the angels are rejoicing because the people of God got it. And they heard the heartbeat of God. And they begin to pray with expectation and work in tandem with one another and the Spirit of God to bring in the harvest. Jesus said it's, it's ripe, it's ready, it's there. Just ask the Lord to send out workers in the harvest field. The harvest is plentiful. You realize that if everybody in this little community of Wrightsville, I'm not even talking about Eastern York, just in Wrightsville, if everybody in Wrightsville decided next Sunday to go to church, we don't have near enough space in all of our churches in Wrightsville to hold them all. You know, it's easy for us to kind of forget that and be like, you know, there's, there's a church down the street, there's a church over there. Like, like we're actually covering all the bases. We're not covering all the bases. If we saw this community come to Jesus, we'd have to build something else or move somewhere else because all the four or five churches in this community couldn't contain them all. I don't know how all that works out, but I know what God's waiting for. God's waiting for people to see people the way he sees them, to have a heart for the harvest. 